You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig. And my name is Nicolas Vieta. And we co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. On today's podcast, we're going to be looking at how people have visualized war from the 18th century to the present day, but also at how war has changed how we think and understand the world around us and organize ourselves. To help us wrestle with this huge topic, we're joined by Anders Engberg Pedersen, Professor of Comparative Literature at the University of Southern Denmark. Anders is the author of Empire of Chance, published in 2015, which argues that the Napoleonic Wars not only changed the nature of warfare, but also shaped later habits of thought and models of knowledge. So, for example, by triggering new approaches to concepts of chance and probability. This is something we're keen to understand better, the ways in which war shapes society as well as society shaping war. So we've got lots of questions to put to Anders on that topic. And we're also going to be asking him about his research into the emotional impact of different images of war, how war gets turned into art, and how he visualizes the future of war. And as your work crosses into so many areas that the Visualizing War Project is interested in. So as I've said, we've got lots of questions and lots of things we want to talk to you about. But first, let me welcome you to the Visualizing War Podcast. Thanks very much for sparing the time to talk to us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on. So, Anders, your research focuses on the 18th to the 21st century, but I think we should start in the 1800s with the Napoleonic Wars before we come closer to the present day and maybe even into the future. In your book, Empire of Chance, you look at how the Napoleonic Wars shifted people's understanding of war itself. You write, for example, with the Napoleonic Wars, a different understanding of war appears. Around 1800, one can detect the emergence of a discourse on war as a problem of knowledge. What can be known? What is the status of information? What's the role of chance? How is chance represented, controlled and managed? These are some of the questions that begin to guide the discourse on war. So I wonder, Anders, if you can explain that a bit more to us and our listeners. How and why did people's understanding of war shift? And in what way did it become a problem of knowledge? Right. So I think one way of approaching it is to look at just the, the sheer magnitude of the revolutionary and the Napoleonic Wars. They far exceeded the much more limited types of warfare that uh, people had in, in recollection from the 18th century. And that experience of being uprooted for you know, over 20 years across Europe and, and indeed across the globe, since the ramifications of the Napoleonic Wars were really not just a European thing, but, but extended to, to uh, uh, pretty much every single continent, that led people to, to reflect uh, more deeply on sort of the, the problems of how you can manage warfare, but also the very problem of warfare as a problem of knowledge. I think that that's one background. Another background would be the intellectual background stemming from the philosophical environment in which many of these thinkers moved. You know, they were well-read in, in, in their Kant. They were sort of very philosophically astute. And that intellectual background also meant a kind of raising of the level of discourse where there was a more systematic way of thinking about uh, the problem of knowledge. So I think there's both a, both a kind of historical background to it in the nature of warfare itself, and then also an intellectual background insofar as, as they were deeply informed by the various discourses, both in philosophy, but also in literature, in, in sort of a culture at large, uh, that informed the way people actually came to conceive warfare. Do you think, Anders, that Napoleon, the way in which he conducted war, might also have had something to do with it? Because he was a very vocal military man, right? He wrote a lot. He uh, entered into lots of debates. He talked about Hannibal's march, for example. Uh, his campaigns were represented in so many different art forms. So the way in which he presented himself and the, the way in which he conducted war was a way that kind of prompted people to engage with it also intellectually. Do you think that was a factor as well? Or that maybe explains why it had this kind of force as a catalyst to bring all these different things together. So yes, one of the sort of key experiences among the Prussian thinkers who really developed much of this thought about war as a problem of knowledge was the grand defeat in 1806, where Prussia was simply overrun 
by the new kinds of warfare that, that Napoleon waged. So the levée en masse, you know, the introduction of mass conscription, the way he divided armies and, and simply outsped his opponents, those tactics, they completely overwhelmed a, a very staid Prussian bureaucracy, which forced them to rethink, why did we lose? And that experience of loss, of not knowing what to do, of not being able to rely on one's usual way of doing things, certainly generated uh, the impetus for really rethinking what war is, how it can be waged. And uh, I, I remember Karl von Clausewitz at one point writes that Prussia lost because of its old forms. So there was this quest to think about new forms of waging war, and then also new intellectual forms in order to counter Napoleon's uh, type of warfare. So that's very much a background, this, you know, the sense not just of grand warfare, but also the sense of failure and the kind of need to overcome that failure, certainly. The way of uh, sort of the intellectual work that's being produced in response to this is also a way of uh, sort of psychologically working through these fundamental experiences of uh, of failure, which you know for Prussia at that point, I mean they, they were pretty new, right? <laughs> it's, uh, they had been quite successful uh, generally, so. It's sort of the end of the myth of Prussian supremacy because, of course, they had Frederick the Great, who had been a, a renewer of warfare in, in the midst of the 18th century. But that was sort of was 50 years ago, and they were still stuck with some of those ways of thinking. So, so yes, certainly. Yeah, and Frederick the Great himself was a very intellectual emperor. Very much, yes. <laughs> yes. Wrote a poem about warfare, even. So, yes. So Anders, if we wanted to kind of break it down into a bit of a before and after comparison, could you give us and our listeners a few sort of concrete examples of how things changed from before to after Napoleon? Certainly. So if you look at the military theory of the 18th century, there was a quite solid interest in a kind of geometrical model of warfare, basing military theory on really the types of fortifications that had been developed some 100 years ago, and the belief that there were sort of universal rules to warfare, which could be applied not just to fortification. If you go back to 1700, Vauban was you know, the, the great engineer who fortified you know, several cities in France. And if you read through those treatises, you find a belief in sort of the, the power of geometry to, to really organize warfare. That was in the midst of the century, then by both French and Prussian military thinkers, then applied to how you organize armies themselves. Uh, so this became a kind of geometrical choreography that was meant to uh, organize the people, not just the architecture itself. And that general belief in both the universality of military laws and in particular in this sort of geometrical system uh, really suffered a quite serious shipwreck in the Napoleonic Wars, uh, you know, given their, uh, their, their size, the, um, the expansion of the space, the expansion of the number of people involved, such that military thinkers started to wonder, how can you even control a phenomenon this complex? So in the writings of Karl von Clausewitz is, is, of course, one of the key writers in, in this, who claims that one of the really essential elements that one must contend with is the problem of chance the problem of uncertainty, the problem of non-knowledge. So against this belief that you can sort of organize both attack and defense by recourse to geometrical figures and Euclidean geometry comes the idea that this is no longer an available option. You need to think more about chance, you need to think more about uncertainty, and you need to find new sort of models for handling that uncertainty. So I think what's, what's really interesting about some of these thinkers is that on the one hand, they say uncertainty has really been ignored up to now. It fills much more than you know, what has been thought up until now, in particular against the background of the Napoleonic Wars. But at the same time, they don't just throw up their hands and say, ah, it's all a matter of chance and, and there are no governing principles at all. At the same time, they try to find out, well, how can we then manage this new epistemology of warfare, this phenomenon that is pervaded by change, which is thoroughly complex, how can we still manage it? It's in that dilemma 
between acknowledging the difficulties and at the same time trying to devise new models for war, that this thinking really emerges. And I guess that's why you titled your book The Empire of Chance to capture this change. In your book, Anders, you explain that these new models, these new understandings of war led to new methods of writing about and representing war. So with this sort of greater awareness of how blurry and elusive and chaotic war was, it became harder to describe it with the concepts and the categories and the sort of the techniques that had been inherited from the 18th century and this sort of almost a new poetics of war emerged again. Could you tell us and our listeners a bit more about that? Maybe give us one or two concrete examples of how these new forms of representation compared with older models. Mm -hmm. Yes, certainly. Because, I mean, one thing is looking at, at military theory, but I think what's interesting is that so many writers were in a sense grappling with similar problems. So the commander was faced with you know, this vast complexity of large-scale warfare across several countries, even continents. Military theorists were faced with that problem. How do you understand this? How do you theorize it? But then you also had authors who were faced with it. How do you then describe it in literary works? So there's a kind of common problem of dealing with the wars. And there's a quite interesting sort of lineage here because one of the first writers to really attempt to describe a large Napoleonic battle is Honoré de Balzac. And you know, he, uh, as any reader of Balzac will know, usually was a very prolific author who had absolutely no problem get getting words down on the page. But, but it's a quite curious phenomenon when he then wants to write this book. It's, it's a book which is uh, supposed to be called La Bataille, just the battle. And you know he, you, you can read up in his in his notes about this work. So it's sort of the process is kind of well documented. And he spends about three years trying to find out how can he actually manage to describe this battle. And what he wants to do is to at once give a kind of panoramic, uh, almost cartographic description where you can see everything. And he says as if from above. So he wants that sort of bird's eye view where you you get a sense of, of the entire battle. But then at the same time, he says, I also want the reader to feel as if they're sitting in their comfy chair at home, but they're really being carried through the battlefield. So a very different perspective, uh, sort of the immersive experience of warfare. And he simply is unable to reconcile these two different perspectives. He announces the novel uh, and says, you know, it, it will come out soon. And then it's postponed. And he keeps writing to his editor. And, oh, no, it's good. You know, I'm, I'm working on it. You'll get it. And then eventually, after uh, about three years, he just has to give up and says, you know, I, I, I really couldn't figure out this problem. And everything that he wrote after three years was something like La Bataille, early May, 1809, around midday, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> uh, so that was sort of the sum of, of three years of work. But then what's interesting is that having struggled with this problem, he comes across Stendhal's The Charterhouse of Parma a couple of years later. And he is completely envious because he says, oh, but this is what I should have done. This is how I could have tackled the problem. And what Stendhal does in, in that novel, of course, is that he follows the 15-year-old protagonist. He, he has no knowledge of what goes on at the Battle of, of Waterloo, but follows him around and adopts his perspective. And that sort of relinquishing of the panoramic view uh, and just sort of metonymically describing the war by describing a single experience of it was for Balzac sort of the method that he should have adopted. So, and he's not the only one actually to be very taken by, by this new method of following an unknowing protagonist, a protagonist who has no clue what is going on. Uh, because later on, Tolstoy will, do, uh, will also read this when he's working on One Piece and is similarly enthralled by that description and says, oh, th this is how you can actually describe something which is so vast and so complex by focusing on this one perspective, and in particular on this sort of unknowing perspective, the person who has no clue what is going on. So that's sort of part of the trajectory of, uh, of the sort of big war novel in, in the 19th century that deals with the Napoleonic Wars. That's really fascinating. So we move from this sense of certainty, geometry, calculation, uh, uh, to really, you know, the fog of war and an awareness that the fog of war is something that, uh, you know, prevents representation, but is also in itself something to represent. I'm really fascinated by mm. the Balzac example in particular, 
partly because it gets me wondering how much had he read, you know, ancient Greek texts, for example. So the Iliad is an incredibly powerful epic poem, which actually manages to combine both the bird's eye view Mm -hmm. from time to time, partly through the use of the gods um, and these panoramic, almost cartographic scenes with very much more immersive, hand to hand, intimate scenes. I've just been to know whether he had any experience of reading much, much earlier works like that and felt that they were somehow lacking. So there's no description in his notebooks of any of the ancient works. But of course, that that is an an important uh, prequel to to this, as it were. But I think one of the differences, he also sort of the status of the individual, what we are following in in Balzac is is really the anti-hero. It is the very opposite description of uh, heroic warfare. It is also the opposite of any kind of metaphysical understanding of warfare. So while there are certain, say, overlaps in technique, there are also quite serious differences with regards to who is that protagonist uh, and what does that protagonist come to represent? And I guess these problems, they are still problems that uh, occupy historians even today in the sense that when you write historically about a battle or war, you try to find the big lines, the things that keep everything together to get exactly the sort of, here's the battle that happens. But at the same time, in order to do this, you need the reports from the people who were in the battle Mm. and they were so occupied with their own situation and they were so limited to their own perspective they don't have this panoramic overview so something is starting there this I guess is still sort of a a, a big problem beyond literature beyond art and it's a big question also generally about how do we talk about a battle because we have these problems yes and no 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 exactly I mean the one one argument would be at least from a historian's point of view would be that you know the individual may have a kind of sensory understanding of warfare, but has probably very little conceptual understanding of what actually goes on. So I'd say that there are also different orders of knowledge that distinguishes uh, you know, the immersed participant. And then, of course, the subsequent historian who, who tries to elevate him or herself above the fray in order to actually understand sort of the, 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 the bigger picture. I'd say w- within the literary examples, I'd say this very distinction is absolutely central to War and Peace. What's interesting in War and Peace is that Tolstoy, he has a very ideological understanding of war where he claims that nobody can ever know anything in war. So sort of contrary to to some of the Prussian military thinkers who acknowledged the role of chance, but at the same time said, but there are ways that we can try to deal with this. Uh, Tolstoy completely abandoned the belief in the ability of handling warfare. He he simply claims it's too complex. But then what you see in that novel is that he uses maps as the kind of symbol for a scientific historical approach to war in which you can understand, in which you can completely get an overview of what happened uh, during a a given battle. So every time, you should notice it if you read it soon, every time a map appears in, in War and Peace, it's connected to a certain Prussian general who has a completely scientific understanding of warfare. And in that sense, the map comes to stand for much more than a, a tool of war, which is, of course, what it also is. But it comes to stand for a whole conception of what war is, namely something that can be understood, something that can be managed, and in the end, something that has meaning. For Tolstoy, you know, war is, is meaningless. It is completely chaotic and it is incomprehensible. So, so he really adopts that as a method of establishing a kind of clash between the historian's approach and his understanding of war. Now, he's more subtle than this because he, of course, also has claims about what actually happened. So he's not quite honest, you know, uh, given his description of what war is. But, but this is how he kind of stages a, a clash, a clash really between different media then also in that novel, because he's, of course, a novelist. And the way that he claims you can describe what war really is is through his narratives. When he takes uh, Pierre, when he takes André, the main protagonist, and immerses them into the battle where they get you know, increasingly lost. So there's also this sort of alternative battle you know, above and beyond the French and, and the Russians between different media of war and how these different media of war shape what we claim war is. Then this then also plays out in this other part of Tolstoy's novel, which is the piece when we see people who, who have remained back home and they talk about war and the way in which they talk about war, especially later on in the novel, that becomes a real 
um, kind of a social fact where it, it defines where you stand, which social groups you belong to, and you need to get it right. You can understand where the favor is because initially, of course, they favor Napoleon because they have the French background. And then this all shifts and the Russians become more important. And th these narratives then play out also in the, in the other part of the novel, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, no, so, yeah so, certainly, certainly. Following up on this uh, a bit, this relationship between representation and reality is obviously something that we are really interested in visualizing war. And at one point, you quote Friedrich Kittler as, as saying, the state of war is as much a product of media as the media are a product of war. So war generates narratives and narrative forms. That, that's something we've, we've, we've been talking about uh, already today. But then those narrative forms also shape or even produce war. And that's really something we wanted to ask you about, what you mean by this and how this works. Also because we had recently an interview for one of our podcasts on war in the digital age. So it's really quite interesting to see something like this happening in the 19th century. So can you give us a bit of examples, a bit of insight into how this uh, dynamic relationship between narratives and war works? Yes, certainly. So the, the Kittler quotation, uh, th that is actually sort of my extension or, or a slight critique of, 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 of Kittler, because uh, Kittler, of course, claimed for so long that war generates media. It is sort of the force behind the generation of various media that then move out into the civil sphere afterwards. And what I have been interested in then is to look at how conceptions of war are themselves developed by these media, such that we really need to attend to how a map organizes war, how a novel describes war, how, how does a narrative organize war? And I've been looking at these games, war games, how do they then produce war? So there's a kind of world building that is going on in each of these works, and we need to attend to those different forms in order to understand then what conceptions uh, of war are being made. So yes, war has historically generated lots of technological developments, and including war media. At the same time, if we want to understand the kind of inherent understanding of what war is uh, in these media, then we really need to be very look very carefully at the ways that they are constructed. So what I have been looking at here are these sort of different understandings between you know, the way a narrative organizes time versus the way a map organizes space versus the way a war game organizes uh, a whole world to be experienced by a soldier or a player. I think it's my sort of general attempt to, to take the, the Kitlerian view uh, you know, one, one step further and say, well, it's fine that war produce media, but the media themselves, in a sense, are also in the business of producing conceptions of war. So the, the complexity of war makes it hard for us to visualize war. And that's something that came about particularly um, during the Napoleonic Wars. But our attempts to conceptualize long before then and, and long after have themselves constituted war and shaped it. And I think one particular thing that really interested me, you've mentioned war games and so on. And I think in, in your book, you also discuss the use of text as training grounds. Right, that, right. Res respond to this new understanding of war that's something very fluid and unpredictable and help somehow to simulate the realities of warfare for readers. It's something that we see happening a bit in ancient texts, and of course, modern online games do that too. So I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about how the textual simulations work in the 19th century, and maybe how they compare with what gaming offers viewers in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. So this is very interesting. There is a, an, an interesting text that was written by one of the key Prussian military leaders called uh, Scharnhorst. I think it's 1807-8 or something. And it, it's about military history. And as far as I recall, the subtitle is uh, the, the reasons for its lack. And what he complains about is that we always see soldiers and officers in their sort of parade clothing. We see them when they're behaving well, when they're making the correct decisions and so on. But that for him is completely misdescribes the actual situation of making a decision in war. So, so he becomes an advocate for a different kind of history writing, a kind of history writing where you try to describe all the errors, the, the lack of understanding, the uncertainties uh, that uh, went into the decision, but the environment that constitutes the actual environment of that decision making. One of his students was Karl von Clausewitz, and uh, he, of course, wrote his big treatise on war, 
He also wrote, you know, by far the major part of his output is historical writings. And if you read those, and it's quite interesting that he seems to have taken some of this to heart, trying to always describe who knew what, when, and what did they not know, and what was sort of this status of information? Was it certain? What, what level of uh, probability did a piece of information have? So he tries to sort of recreate that uh, epistemic situation that commanders and officers found themselves in. What's interesting with, with him, though, is that at one point he says, you might as well use an invented example, provided that it is written with a kind of proper poetics. He doesn't use the word poetics, but that's essentially what, what, what he's, he's arguing. So, so this is interesting. It, it's not a matter of you know, finding of, of, of sort of historical ontology. Did this take place or not? But it's a question of creating a kind of textual simulation in which people can become used to operating in uncertain environments. And it, it's, it's quite interesting that much later, uh, Clausewitz's work was translated in, into Russian. And the Russian translator at one point says, if you are a military thinker or a practitioner, you really need to read Tolstoy because he is the perfect supplement to this kind of theorizing that Clausewitz is, is, is arguing for. So already then there was a kind of understanding that even literary text could provide uh, a kind of knowledge. And the idea was, again, unlike in the 18th century, where there were fairly established ideas of laws of engagement, the idea was that you can't really learn particular laws from history, but you can learn habits of acting, habits of thinking. Uh, so by immersing yourself in these historical examples, then you can teach yourself to deal with chance, deal with contingency, deal with strife, and so on. And that's really the kind of training that a proper military leader should have. I find this so fascinating, partly again, because there are some really interesting connections between some of the material I work on in the ancient world. So I work on the author Frontinus, yes. and he wrote an art of war. So he wrote a yes. treatise that we don't have anymore, but we can reconstruct as basically being a set of rules. But he complemented that with a massive collection of 500 examples, historic examples, little tiny anecdotes about how a general came up with a route here or there or whatever. And the idea very much is that you use them together and the exemplar collection, the collection of examples, is this sort of decision-making training ground. It's a simulate, a textual simulation mm -hmm. effectively. So it's, it's really fascinating to see this coming about again, you know, in the 1800s. And I wonder how you think that then compares with how wargaming itself in the 21st century works as a simulation in terms of whether it's training decision-making or, or something else. Yes. So interestingly, Clausewitz was actually quite skeptical of, of wargaming in around 1800, because this is really the period when wargames come into their own and become adopted by militaries as uh, sort of substantial training devices, where they move away from being you know, quaint games and actually become the serious games of training devices. But one thing that, that I've been looking into is the ways in which there was a kind of, well, if, if you look at the war games around 1800, most of them are about training tactics, organizing different strategies and scenarios. But at the same time, what interested me was that already then you see an incipient attempt to train emotions. And this is something that has really distinguished 21st century wargaming, where not just strategies and tactics are being developed, but uh, there has also been a, an attempt to use uh, these kind of uh, simulations and training scenarios as ways to prepare soldiers going to battle and to repair them when they return, you know, to treat trauma. So, for example, in, in 1999, the Institute of Creative Technologies was established in California, which is a big collaboration between the military psychologists, but also, you know, game designers, Hollywood also, in an attempt to produce immersive scenarios that have this capacity to you know, seize on and manage uh, the whole apparatus of the soldiers, including their emotions. So I think one of the big developments in the 21st century is that this has become sort of a, a prime uh, phenomenon, that, that this is something you want to do. You want to protect the soldiers, thus you want to create resilience um, in them before they uh, go into battle. And if they're nevertheless traumatized, you want to see if you can train that. It's, it's a kind of Freudian talking cure with images, 
um, in, in a sort of fairly sophisticated way. Now, there's lots of debates about whether it's actually working. There's a high dropout rate because it, it can be quite overwhelming to be immersed in these scenarios. So it is somewhat controversial. But this attempt to, to, to then I, uh, rationalize the whole emotional life of soldiers is, on the one hand, uh, sort of the latest development of these games. And on, on the other hand, you see it already in its early forms around 1800, partly because you know that if you want to interest a student, you need to engage their emotions. So it's partly because they simply want to engage students. But it is also, uh, you know, one of these authors says, fearlessness is something that we need to train. You also need to train courage, courage to act on certainties. How do you do that? We put you in this, you know, game, game, very basic game simulator back then, and then you can train these things. It's interesting to see how war games that are often thought to be very rational endeavors, developing tactics and strategies, have also become means of really uh, organizing, managing emotions. I have a slightly sort of different question that follows up from this. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've heard about Clausewitz, who reads history, and that influences how he thinks about war. We have the Russian translator who says you need to read Tolstoy. So there's this idea that literature is really good training ground and can teach you something. One text that I've been thinking of is Sallust's War Against Jugurtha, because when the Roman general Marius makes his pitch against the, his competitors, who are all from the aristocracy, one thing he says is, these guys are useless as generals because all they do is they read books about war, but mm -hmm. I have the actual experience. So there's a conflict there also that kind of goes back to antiquity. And I'm just wondering, do we oh, find yeah. the same conflict also in the sort of the, in the 18th, 19th century? This idea that people say, go away with your books. You really you just need the experience learning by doing and this sort of thing. And no, no, certainly. And, and I think it's, it's an excellent question also directly to, to Clausewitz. Because what he says is that you can't use bookish wisdom for anything. So when he says you should go read books, uh, even, even literary text, imagined examples, then the point is, is, is not to say that you can learn particular truths that you can then apply out in the field, but it is much more this training of habit. So it's, it's a kind of virtual experience that he claims you need to have. He went to Potsdam to witness some of the maneuvers, training maneuvers that were being conducted, you know, on, on, on the ground physically and said, oh, but this is, you know, just the old ancient, well, not ancient, but, but uh, 18th century choreography where everyone knows where they have to be in five minutes. And that's then where they go. War is nothing like that. War is pervaded by these uncertainties. You need to be able to train those as well. So I think what he finds with this focus on particular examples is a kind of idiosyncrasy of the example. Here you find one particular way uh, or instance of warfare, that is what you will encounter. So you cannot take too many sort of general ideas from that example, but you can nevertheless get a sense of what being in that particular situation is like. And that may then sort of teach you a, a general habit of mind. Uh, so he was certainly not one who would say, uh, you know, just go read books, but in the absence of something better. I mean, he, he also says the best training is to have been at war. So this is, this is the general problem of warfare. How do you train something which is violent and dangerous? And, and can you do that in, in the absence of the phenomenon itself? And, and, and texts for him were, were, were really the, the best supplement for actual experience. Uh, but the idea was it should generate not laws, but virtual experience. And these habits of thinking really sort of connect up to habits of visualizing war. So one's experience in a war, you, I think you said earlier that people were conducting these wars on the basis of their past recollections of previous wars, which didn't match up in scale or reach. So actually one's habits of experiencing war are themselves sometimes necessarily out of date because war is always playing catch up with itself. And habits of visualizing war die hard, don't they? So I think you talk a lot about you you've already mentioned it a little bit today you talk in your book a lot about how um, maps continued um, during the Napoleonic Wars to promote an idea of war as something that was organized and knowledgeable while novels and other art forms kind of worked against this what we see is a sort of a tension with competing habits of visualizing war emerging yes no no certainly and and here I think it's important to distinguish between sort of the general understanding the general propaganda also of using maps and then the reality on the ground. Because if, if you go into the archives, I, I found uh, a quite interesting collection of very almost destroyed tiny fragments of maps 
that were used during the invasion of Prussia in 1812. It's a completely different image of war that you get when you look at these maps compared to the post hoc uh, historical maps that say, here's one army, here was the other, and then this was what happened during the Battle of Paris, for example. Here you have kind of, uh, it's, it's mapping on the ground, mapping as you go. They really did not know where they were going. So they would send out the topographical engineers to map you know, the area one day in advance and then send back that visual information based on which a commander would then make a decision about where to go and what to do. But, but if you look at that visual imagery, it's kind of the, a map that has been cut apart and scrambled. It looks nothing like the, the polished uh, subsequent maps. So it's interesting also that there is a kind of a different level to that, which is mapping was erroneous. So many of the maps had you know, competing scales in the same map. There were large complaints about the map simply being, being wrong. So there's, I'd say, you know, the kind of ideological level where maps come to symbolize a certain understanding of war. And then there's uh, sort of the, the level of, of, of reality where mapping was still incipient. It was not developed. Many people didn't quite know what they were doing or they didn't have the means. So many of these maps were made while they, they were being shot at. Uh, and that, of course, reflects the, the representation itself. But it's interesting then also to look at these maps because you can kind of see the context of their making inscribed in the very image itself which is something you don't really do when you look at you know, the subsequent, more elaborate, really propagandistic maps. The, the very sort of production process of its production, that disappears. You just look at the beauty of the map itself. But, but you know, here you see penciled in a uh, command to soldiers. Uh, you, you see how they are completely uh, torn, disconnected, and so on. So there's a way in which you know, being at war is actually perhaps the most significant representation of those tiny fragments. So I wonder whether we can stay with maps uh, a little bit, not only because it's something I'm currently quite interested in, but, uh, but also because I wonder whether we can link this also with especially what you were just saying about maps that were created in the action, whether we can link this with this question of uh, emotions that we were discussing earlier and the different ways in which different media, especially visual media, kind of evoke uh, different emotions and what kind of uh, use we can make of those emotions. I'm, I'm particularly thinking of a, of a chapter um, you contributed to a, a volume you edited, uh, Visualizing War, Emotions, Technologies, Communities, where you uh, look at maps uh, alongside the video games and uh, sort of the emotional impact of these various types of visual uh, presentations. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. What, what got me interested in this was that there's a kind of a foundational scene in mapping and war, I would say, sort of in media studies, which is when an inventor called Reiswitz comes to the Prussian king and shows him a war game that he has made. And this is really uh, the adoption of war gaming into uh, the Prussian military. What's interesting is that one of the people present uh, who is being you know, shown this, this war game, he has a very interesting reaction. At first, he's kind of skeptical. Um, he, you know, it, it, he gets a cool response, this, uh, this Heisfitz um, inventor. But then as the, the game progresses, as he's being shown how it works, gets increasingly animated and eventually exclaims, this isn't just a war game, uh, this is a school of war. Um, what interests interest me, inter interest me there was that um, usually when we think about war games, we think about uh, war games as something that has to have an effect out in the world. Um, they're training devices for uh, changing the world, for acting in a certain way. But you know, following some of the sort of image theory of uh, Hans Belsing, it's interesting to look also at the anthropology of images and at sort of the anthropology of these war games. What is it that they do, not in the direction of the world, but in the direction of the people using it? Um, so, so this got me interested in looking a bit more at um, sort of the contextual documents for what do we know about how they impacted the people using them? And this is how I got sort of interested in looking at the ways in which both maps, but, but especially war games, because they're dynamic, um, end up 
serving as a kind of uh, emotional training ground for these soldiers, in interpolating not just their minds for making strategies and tactics, but also their emotions. So that kind of came out from that scene. And that is really what has been developed so strongly here in the 21st century, where it has become clear that there is such power in sort of the dynamized images of wargaming that they can serve uh, to really manage deeply how people not just think, but how they feel. Yeah, and that goes really to the heart of our project. Uh, we're really interested in this sort of feedback loop between narrative and reality and the way in which war stories shape people's mindsets, behaviours, how people think and feel and behave. I wonder if we can stay with visual images and their emotional impact a little bit. There are lots of other contributors to the book Nicholas has just mentioned, visualising war emotions, technologies and communities. The contributors look at photographs, film, drone footage and social media. And I wonder if you can just uh, talk us through some of the lessons that the book as a whole might teach us about, about trends in visualising war, but how powerful and manipulative different visual images of war can be, both on individuals and groups. Groups, because I think there's quite an interest in the book in how they build collective emotions as well as impacting individuals. Yes, I, I guess the, the whole book was sort of an attempt to nuance and perhaps improve our visual literacy when it comes to warfare. I, th I think whenever we talk about war and emotions, we very often invoke sort of the basic emotions paradigm, these, you know, six to nine different basic emotions, uh, depending on which neuropsychologist you ask, but very powerful ones, uh, fear, joy, anger, and so on. But what the book wanted to do was to say, aside from these, you know, very powerful emotions, as well as the sort of iconic images of war that keep resurfacing, and that kind of shape our imagery of warfare. There's a whole range of much more complex images and also much more complex emotions that belong to representation of, of war. That images are really very rarely immediate. This is kind of a standard conception that we have that unlike texts, images somehow contain their meaning already in themselves. But so many of these uh, essays show just the, the enormous complexity of what these images really signify. And also that, that the emotions that they evoke uh, do not necessarily belong to this sort of basic emotions paradigm of very powerful emotions, but also much more complex, uh, much more mingled emotions. And, and with regards to, to communities, I think one example is, uh, you know, endless wars in Iraq and, and Afghanistan and now in Syria over the past almost 20 years seems to have left so many viewers kind of inured to the power of these images so that they can generate not just communities that are energized either for or against the war, but can also generate apathy and boredom. And, and this, I think, in the two first decades of the 21st century has become a kind of standard response to visual imagery because we have been flooded by all, all these images. So it's, it's, it's an attempt to also try to uh, complexify, as, as it were, sort of this power of, of the image that, yes, they can certainly generate, you know, very strong emotions. But at the same time, there are also situations, uh, and in particular in the 21st century, where simply the bombardment of, of images does something to the, the way that populations really respond to imagery today. This resonates so much with what some of our other podcast guests have talked about. We've had a couple of artists on the podcast who've talked about the need to perhaps use beauty or a really kind of careful aesthetics to avoid the sort of the brutalizing images that turn people off that actually uh, uh, overload the senses almost we've also had a conflict photographer again talking about that very issue and and talking about the the, the the way in which he strives to produce images of conflict that make you stop and question and wonder is this actually an image of conflict mm. is it an image of peace is it an image of hope and again we've talked also to Frank Muller um, an academic who works a lot on on peace photography and visualizing mm -hmm. peace and they all talk again about this issue of this sort of the uh, perhaps a misunderstanding about the kind of the immediacy of our emotional impact but the way in which images can open up a kind of a slower way of looking and thinking I wonder if you can just talk us and our listeners a little bit more through this distinction between the six to nine senses or um, emotional reactions that we often think of and the kind of the more complex mingled emotions that the volume really explores images as perhaps generating. 
I suppose the starting point for that was sort of the recurrent iconography of war that, you know, there, there's a the kind of standard repertoire of images that most people will be able to conjure forth if you ask them, you know, what are some of the salient images of war? Well, they often end up generating or falling with, within sort of a, a fairly standardized array of emotions. The attempt was to expand that whole array of emotions and say that not just the immediacy of emotions may be wrong, but also the sort of clear-cut nature of emotions, the very distinctions that we make between these basic emotions may not really capture the ways in which images of war actually work. So when you look at, there's, there's an article, for example, by Elisabeth Krima at UC Davis, who's looking at um, autobiography and, and so some of the photographies associated with this. And she teases out just the enormous complexity of these photographs and the emotions that accompanied them. The work of Alexander Kluge does a, does a similar thing. So, so it's, it's an attempt to uh, develop a bit further to perhaps bracket a bit this idea that, that is so inborn that emotions are immediate and that emotions are fairly clear. Uh, if you look at the emotions generated by much, many visualizations of war, it, it is anything but, but immediate and, 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 and clear. I think you um, are working on a book at the moment which, which looks at the way in which perhaps military institutions in particular are co-opting visual imagery and art, perhaps to um, leverage emotions, but, but to optimise the war effort. I wonder if you can tell us a bit about that. Yes, absolutely. So, so where, where the other book was, was really about warfare and epistemology, war and knowledge, this book looks more at war and aesthetics. And what, what I got interested in was not just how the whole field of aesthetics comes to represent war, kind of often post-fact, you know, all the examples from, I, I, I mentioned from the Napoleonic Wars, where, you know, subsequent representations of the Napoleonic Wars, how are we to understand this? What does war do to literature? But what does it do to, to art? How does war impact art? What, what I got interested in was how the military itself, how military institutions have latched on to aesthetics as a sort of large field and sought to militarize it in order to transform it into a tool of warfare. So when does it happen and what are the consequences of having suddenly aesthetics as part of a war effort, not just as something that stands outside of it and tries to understand it, but is actually being enrolled and its power harnessed as a kind of tool of warfare. So that has brought me both you know, back into the, the world of games, but it, it has also brought me into military doctrine, military thought as such, military theory. And what I'm trying to do is to look at both the 21st century, look at the simulations, look at the connections between military institutions and academic institutions, and the ways in which narratives, the ways in which uh, images, the ways in which sort of world building, aesthetic world building is really part and parcel of the military effort today. So there's a kind of technological uh, line of inquiry, which looks at these technological imaginaries uh, and tries to understand what their force really is. And then there's another line of inquiry, which is about the ideas. And this is quite interesting because in the past 12 years or so, there has been an interest in using a whole new vocabulary within military, vocabulary of creativity, of artistry, of sort of thinking outside the box, but framed as uh, kind of the, really the standard vocabulary of aesthetics and claiming this is something that we need to do now because we've been thinking way too rigidly and mechanistically about how to engage warfare. And so what I do is to trace these two developments, both the techn technologies and the ideas back in history to find out where do they come from and uh, how can that sort of frame how war is becoming an increasingly creative and aesthetic phenomenon in the 21st century. And there's some, some, there's some, some interesting beginnings uh, among some of the Prussians that I've already mentioned. Karl von Clausewitz is, is, is one, but, but there are also some other thinkers who were uh, you know, steeped in philosophical aesthetics at the time and who then sort of imported that into the ways that they conceived military theory and military action as such. And so, of course, there's long, as, as you also mentioned, there's long been this art science debate where the, the art side of things usually connects to a kind of praxis 
you know, there are no universal rules, there are experiences, and this is why it is really an art rather than a science. What you find in around 1800, for example, in this guy who's he's kind of forgotten today, which is too bad because he's, he's quite original, uh, a guy called Rüle von Dillenstern, he says, well, it's not just an art-science distinction, it is also a fine art-science distinction. So he ends up crowning warfare as the highest among the fine arts, claiming that warfare, I mean, it, he has a kind of nasty text, which is an apologia for war, but where he claims that what war does is that it boosts the creative energies of a people. And the actual going to war, the commander's task is to shape a material as if it were an artwork. So the commander or the officer is cast uh, an artist, quite literally, a Kriegskünstler is, is what he calls it. And Right. So, so there's a kind of development that begins there where you have not just art and science, but fine art, art and science. And that continues. I mean, it, it's not a sort of massive tradition, but it appears now and, now and again through uh, the past 200 years. And then in, in the 21st century, that has really emerged very strongly in this idea of military design. So military design is a fairly large movement now that it, it actually developed out of an Israeli thinker was imported into the U.S., into U.S. military doctrine around 2008-9, uh, and has then been exported to various Western militaries since, where this whole vocabulary of thinking about warfare as a creative endeavor, kind of world-making, has appeared very strongly. So these are the kind of sort of lines of, of inquiry that I'm pursuing. On the one hand, I suppose, asking us to rethink war as an aesthetic phenomenon, while at the same time also cautioning a bit against uh, doing so because it completely recasts warfare from many of the things that we know it is into almost a kind of enchantment understanding of war as an art form. So in that balance is, is where I'm operating at the moment. This is obviously, again, something that we are very interested in, the way in which in war representations, visualizations of war, different media interact with each other, different types of stories, but also broader discourses, aesthetics that spills over into how people conceive of war, talk about war, think about war. Um, I guess the, the follow-up question I have on this is, uh, how about the opposite direction? Do we also find examples of a military vocabulary, phrasing, concepts, making their way into aesthetics and literary studies and obviously i'm asking because i think you have another project in the works that sort of explores exactly this sort of thing is that right yes I, absolutely so so this is this is a, a book i'm i'm editing with a, a very good colleague of mine uh, neil ramsey uh, is his name and and what we're trying to do is to look at the way in which warfare has really informed literary studies as such both the theories that are being used by literary studies so media studies, uh, critical theory, French theory, post-colonial studies. And then also we're trying to trace some of the sort of key concepts that are being used by scholars working in the field today. So looking at war and sensation, uh, war and trauma, war and capitalism, and so on. So many of the essays have come in now, and, it, and it's really quite fascinating to see how there is this kind of uh, military background to many of the theories that are, have been employed by literary studies for, you know, uh, 50 odd years and, and how they do so variously. For example, we have a, we have a great essay on, on war and critical theory uh, by Max Pensky, where he really shows that the reality of war is dissolved almost in Adorno and Horkheimer and Friends uh, theorizing war as a kind of totalitarian movement, where, whereby actual war is subordinated um, economic and social totalizing tendencies. So while warfare is kind of in, in some way key to how they theorize modern society and critique modern society, uh, war itself is really subsumed this totalizing sort of movement of societies. Uh, and, and thus they end up saying surprisingly little about it, but channel it into a theory of, of society as such. I'm looking at the way I'm writing on, on French theory. So this is uh, Foucault, Deleuze, and some other theorists from the 70s, where suddenly Clausewitz shows up as kind of the master thinker and comes to shape how they then think about society as such. So war becomes a kind of frame for thinking society, but it also becomes a way of doing theory, of not necessarily seeking objectivity, 
but taking a partisan sort of side with theorizing as warfare, as it were. So there, there are so many ways in which warfare has come to uh, sort of shape the whole critical apparatus that we as, as literary critics, we, we use, and you know, beyond literary critics, but, but cultural critics as such, we use. So, so that book is really trying to, to look at, yes, the other way around, how war has come to inform basic concepts of thought in the, well, uh, 21st, 20 and 21st centuries. Anders, you've given us some really fascinating insights there into the way in which war and society co-constitute each other and the way in which war and representations of war mutually inform each other, you know, right from the 1800s to the present day. We, we started by talking about the sort of this great shift in the magnitude of war going to a sort of more global scale, taking much longer, being long drawn out. And of course, there's a lot of talk today about the fact that we're, if not already in it, at least on the cusp of another major shift in warfare in that warfare is happening increasingly online, cyber warfare, digital warfare, drone warfare, and, you know, really war in the digital age. So before we let you go, I wonder if we can ask you a bit about that. We had a fantastic conversation on our podcast a little while ago with someone looking at how digital media is shaping the future of conflict. And I, I wonder how you see the interrelationship between representations of war and war itself developing further in the future? Ah, uh, yes. Well, it's, it's difficult to predict, um, especially about the future, as the saying goes. I mean, I suppose right now, it, it would seem that there are kind of two tendencies that seem to be emerging. One, one is a kind of return to large-scale warfare, of course, updated, but of an older type. One wonders if that actually actualizes itself whether the accompanying, well, whether there'll be a return of the types of, of imagery that we've seen in, you know, in the 20th century from the world wars and so on. And at the same time, one wonders whether what that will mean for populations and populations, of course, a willingness to go to war. Uh, I think many Western nations, uh, their populations have been sort of become used to the distant wars, wars that, that, that really don't affect them immediately, but through which you only have access through images. So one wonders if suddenly high casualties return, and if high casualties return, what that will, and, and you know, the images of these, what that will do to the population's you know, willingness to support war and, and, and so on. So, you know, that would be one interesting thing to look at if war were to develop that way. But of course, the other one is, as you say, cyber warfare, but it's all, you know, technological warfare of various kinds. I think it was only two weeks ago that it came out that in Libya, a series of drones possibly pursued the adversary without any human uh, control, whether they were simply given the, uh, the right to act autonomously. And I think this is, of course, interesting. It's also interesting from a point of view of representation, because what does this drone actually see? What is the representation when it is no longer part of a human visual sort of evaluation? So there's this increasing invisibility of the representation, which I think really demands that scholars, but also artists, begin to engage with those kinds of invisibilities and figuring out what is it that the representation in the case like that actually does, because it's, it would seem that the representation is absolutely crucial there in determining who's friend and who's foe. When humans no longer do that, but it's part of a kind of visual technical apparatus to which we have no access, then I th think it becomes all the more important that we engage more with those kinds of uh, really invisible representations to figure out how they work and, and critique them whenever necessary. So I'm kind of hedging my bets. I'm saying it, it can go one way and it can go the other. But it's interesting that uh, it, it may actually go both ways at, at the same time points you've raised are really, really interesting. But the invisibility one is fascinating because in a sense, we've all been globally at war with quite an invisible phenomenon over the last mm. 12 months in the form of this virus. And what we've done is we've resorted to images of warfare, actually from World War One, World War Two in the UK, at least, yes. um, to conceptualise that and to conceptualise the kind of public collective response and so on. So it suggests that we're not ahead of the game, at least in... <laughs> confronting, conceptualizing, invisible warfare. No, no, absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. I, I ended up writing a kind of angry piece about this because the ways in which 
the whole pandemic has been cast as warfare is, is I think quite telling because the images are precisely from you know World War II, perhaps World War I, but contemporary warfare is nothing like that. So it's, it's as if there's still a kind of public conception or there's being generated a public conception of how war works, what war is, that's completely outdated and has nothing to do with you know, the experiences of the past 20 years. But uh, it works well as a metaphor. So. so so a lot more to study both in the present and interesting, but also sort of challenging problems uh, coming up for studies of representations of war and more exciting books and studies to read. Thank you very much, uh, Anders, for coming on the podcast today. That was a great conversation about war and art and literature and theory and aesthetics and society from the 18th to the 21st century. So a lot of stuff to think about and uh, to kind of mull over. Uh, we hope that you too, our listeners, have enjoyed this conversation with Professor Anders Engbert-Petersen as much as we have. Yes, thank you very much also from me, Anders. There's so much to wrestle with there in terms of thinking about just how powerful our habits, historic and modern habits of visualising war are. Thank you also to you, our listeners, for joining us again. Please do tune in again next week when we'll be turning our attention to musical representations of war. Our guests will be the broadcaster and librettist Kate Kennedy and the award-winning composer Anthony Ritchie, whose oratorio Gallipoli to the Somme will get us thinking about music's ability to critique conflict as well as commemorate it. So do join us for that if you can. And if you would like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts because that really helps people find the show. And if you would like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualizing War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>